So um, today we're starting a series that will last the many next, next many weeks. Obviously next week no church, but we're calling the series Countdown to the Cross. Because uh, Good Friday and Easter's coming. So on Easter Sunday we're going to do Resurrection, but all the weeks leading up to it, we're going to look at very cool things that happened in the last week of Jesus before he went to the cross. Before he went to the cross. And uh, n- not this week, which is camp, but the one after when we come back, we're going to have Communion which a lot of churches stopped doing during COVID. I don't know about you, but I miss having communion with a lot of people. So communion in two weeks' time. Please spread word that we're not going to be meeting next week. A lot of people who are not coming to the camp are going to rock up and go, where is everyone? Just remind them if they're not here today. Really, if you're still thinking about whether you should come to the camp, uh, come! <laughs> come! It's going to be wonderful. And um, I really am... I joined this church because of last year's camp, so, so yeah. Before we came on a Sunday, we went to the camp. So, come along. And one of the things I loved about the camp is my kids made friends with kids and started feeling connected. So, if you have children, it'd be a no-brainer just to come along. But it's not just. For, it's going to be all ages. So, one of our values as a church is intergenerational, and I, I think camp is probably about the best time in the year to build relationships. Uh, as many as you can. Okay, why and how to love Jesus lavishly. That's what I'm speaking about today. Why and how to love Jesus lavishly. Six days before the post Passover, in John chapter 12, verse 1, Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Here a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha served while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. Then Mary took a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Leave her alone, Jesus replied. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. What a cool story. And uh, what's happening here? Well, this dinner is six days before Jesus is crucified. Jesus, in six days' time, will be arrested, trialed, humiliated, beaten and killed and there is a banquet dinner and uh, the way these banquet dinners work is they didn't sit on chairs like we do nowadays there'd be a table in the middle but they would all lie on their side and they, they, their feet would be out like at a 45 degree angle and they'd be resting on or with one hand like this and another hand free to eat and uh and uh, the focus of this meal was Jesus and Lazarus Lazarus had died in John 11 and was risen again from the dead by the way, there's actually historical evidence for this outside of the Gospels. There is a town in uh, ancient uh, archaeology where this town get, changes its name in the first century to El Lazarus, which probably his archaeologists say is because, well, if someone rises from the dead, it's a public resurrection. You might, uh, it might get a new name, that town. So Lazarus and Jesus are the main attraction here, but Mary is planning something. 
Mary, the younger sister of Martha and Lazarus, takes a half liter of expensive spikenard perfume kept in an alabaster jar. Historians tell us that this particularly expensive perfume was imported all the way from northern India. In the same way today, people might save their money in a bank account or in precious jewels that they hide somewhere. In those days, it was common to put your wealth into perfume because it was so valuable. This was Mary's wealth. And without warning anyone, she breaks the jar and pours it on Jesus. And it's such an abundant amount, I mean half a liter, that uh, she puts some on his head. Matthew 26 tells the story and mentions that detail. And also some on his feet. In those days, the anointing of feet was something slaves did. So there's a certain humility in this role that she's doing. And very rare in those days for a woman to untie her hair. She unties her hair and she washes Jesus' feet. And the result is that this house is filled with the fragrance of perfume. So two questions I want to answer. First one, why love Jesus lavishly? And then secondly, how to love Jesus lavishly? I got a lot of points, too many points. My wife always says, too many points in that sermon. I didn't run this message by her. Sorry. So I'm going to just fly through them. Four reasons why to love Jesus lavishly. One, because of what he has done for us. What did Jesus do for Mary? Only resurrect her brother from the dead. Do you think she feels gratitude towards this man? What has Jesus done for you? One of the themes coming out in worship as Jen was leading us. Gratitude. And of course, you know, all the good things in your life, Jesus did. God's given them to you. But let's not forget what he did for us on the cross. A second reason to to love Jesus lavishly, is because of what he has said to us. In Luke chapter 10, we're told that Mary is the first woman to sit at the feet of a rabbi. And instead of being rebuked for it, Jesus commends it. In those days, women weren't meant to be sit at the feet of the rabbi. Jesus is in town and he's staying in someone's house, Lazarus. Martha's in the kitchen serving as she is here, interestingly. She's again serving up food. And Mary is sitting at the feet of Jesus. And she's listening to his words and he is speaking. And uh, when you hear Jesus speak to you, take note of that moment. And it will give you reason to praise him. I mean, when you hear the gospel preached and, and it comes alive to you, that's because Jesus is speaking to you. Don't become a Christian without being summoned by Jesus. Something supernatural that happens called salvation when Someone's preaching, but it's like there's another voice calling your name. And then, of course, in your history of walking with Jesus, there have been times you read the Bible, something jumped off the page. There have been whispers of the Holy Spirit, maybe prophetic words. These are special markers for you to keep on thanking Jesus, loving Him. I find it amazing that the God who spoke the universe into existence with a word would take the time to speak words to me. Third reason to love Jesus lavishly is that because when we stick close to him, we smell more like him. So this is kind of a side effect. I mean, there's two people at the end of this, this dinner for the next few days that smell the same. It's Mary and Jesus. You know, anyone at that dinner smells Mary the next day. Like, have you been with that guy? You smell the same. 
1 Corinthians chapter 2, our lives are a Christ-like fragrance rising up to God. Acts chapter 4 verse 13, when they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled ordinary men, they were astonished and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. The only way to become a little more Christ-like so that people start noticing there's something different about you is that you've taken time to be with Jesus. As we live closer to Jesus... It inclines us to become a little bit more like Jesus. Almost impossible to become like Jesus without being with Jesus. And then, so why love Jesus lavishly? Because of what he's done for us. Because of what he's said to us. Because when we stick close to him, we smell more like him. And last reason, because when we stick close to Jesus, he sticks up for us. When we stick close to Jesus, he sticks up for us. Mary loves Jesus in the story. Judas criticizes Mary. Mary doesn't say anything. She doesn't need to because Jesus defends Mary. Mind you, the same thing happened in, in, in Luke chapter 10. Mary loves Jesus. Martha criticizes Mary. Mary doesn't stick up for himself. She doesn't need to. Jesus does. In this case, he says to Judas, leave her alone. And to Martha, he says, what she has chosen is better. You take care of your relationship with Jesus. Let him take care of your reputation with others. You take care of your relationship with Jesus. Let him take care of your reputation with others. Every person will experience the pain of being misunderstood. Falsely accused. And every fiber in your being will want to, you want to stick up for yourself. But if the new passion of your heart is to defend your own reputation, you're so far gone, you're going to make it worse. Of course, there's an appropriate time to go, I think I've been misunderstood. But there needs to be a sense that let Jesus vindicate you. It doesn't matter what people think in the final analysis. What matters is what Jesus thinks. Everybody might think you're a hero. But Jesus might, not, might know something else about you. But if you know you're in Jesus' good books, it doesn't matter what other people think. This is one of the awesome reasons. Stick close to Jesus. He'll stick up for you. Okay, so that's why to love Jesus lavishly. Now the practical question. How to love Jesus lavishly? And I've got five quick reasons. Number one, we love Jesus lav- lavishly. You, you can do it by... Putting yourself at Jesus' feet. Putting yourself at Jesus' feet. Um, Mary of Bethany. Three times we're told different stories in the Gospels. The first one, she is sitting at Jesus' feet, listening to him teach. The next time we read is in John chapter 11. Her brother has died. Jesus walks in. She falls at Jesus' feet. And now the third time we read about her, she's at Jesus' feet, washing his feet. I mean, here's a person... Yes, Jesus, there's his feet. Mary's near the feet. It's very unusual in our culture for anyone to fall at your feet. If someone would do that to me, I'd feel extremely uncomfortable. But the, the symbol is clear enough for all cultures to understand. Here's somebody who is humbling themselves in submission and complete devotion. She's recognizing that Jesus is more than her. That she's putting herself in his service. She is wanting to please him above all. She is devoting her life to him. She's giving allegiance to him. And uh, I think that's a lot of what our songs were doing this morning. They were words helping us 
to devote ourselves to Jesus. Sometimes these words that we sing, sometimes they reflect actually what's been happening at my heart. But other times I've gone through a whole week and there's been zero sitting at the feet of Jesus. It's not inauthentic to sing these songs. They help me get back in that place. I'm like, I needed this reminder. And it is encouraging to hear, see other people putting themselves at Jesus' feet. So much of the singing we do is redevoting ourselves to Jesus, putting ourselves in his service, devoting ourselves to his pleasure. Put yourself at his feet. Secondly, offer what is most precious to you. Offer what is most precious to you. I mean, it's important to tell somebody, I love you. It's important to tell Jesus you love him, but you get the feeling that Mary's love language is not words. It's action. (laughs) And she wants to show Jesus she loves him, and she finds the most valuable thing she has. I mean, Judas literally values it as a year's worth of wages. Someone works their heart every single day. They didn't have you know, holidays back then. Works the whole year, gets paid one denarii a day. The end of it, all of their money. You can buy this. That's a lot of, that's, that's cost a lot of money. Judas thinks, no, you wasted that money. You should have, could have done stuff with that. She's taking the most valuable thing she has and she's saying, yeah, Jesus, you can have it all. What's she saying? You are more valuable than anything I have in this world. It's so important to keep on praying that prayer. When I first became a Christian, I became a Christian in East London through a Christian surf camp. And I was proud to call myself a Christian surfer. And then about a year into being a Christian surfer, I heard another Christian surfer telling his story of how God had challenged him not to call himself a Christian surfer anymore, but a surfing Christian. And he told the story of one sitting on the bench, thinking himself as a Christian surfer, and God said to him, Joey, what do you love more, me or surfing? Well, if you love me more than surfing, then rather be a surfing Christian. I, I was so impacted by this. Now it sounds quite trite, but it was revolutionary for me. I mean, I loved surfing and I loved Jesus. That I needed to put surfing in the, in the service of Jesus. And... Uh, Sometimes it might be as practical as finding the most valuable thing you have in this world. Usually a person. If you're a parent, no doubt it's your kids. <laughs> but it might be other things. It could be your reputation, your career. could be your car, your house, your plans. And you freshly relinquish that to Jesus. You say, here Jesus, you can have it. It's yours. It's not mine. Because what we do is we hold on things so tight. And in worship, we loosen our grip on every earthly person, activity, and thing. And we hold Jesus more tightly. It's part of what it means to love Jesus lavishly. And then the third way to love Jesus lavishly is be open-hearted and open-handed. Open-hearted and open-handed. Notice how Judas justifies his criticism of Mary's lavish love towards Christ. He says that it would have been better to have sold the perfume... And put it in the money bag to give it to the poor. Just a little side note here. Jesus and his disciples carry a money bag to cover their expenses and to give some to the poor. Um, This passage can kind of super spiritualize things where you think, no, material things don't matter. And yet there's that little clue. No, no, money is spiritual. (laughs) The way we treat money, your point, Jen. It is part of our spirituality. 
our, our spirituality manifests in our dealing with material things. But, but look why Judas is so eager for her to put the money there. He was a thief, keeper of the money bag. He used to help himself to what was put in it. He is not concerned about the poor at all. He's only concerned about himself. And by the way, he is not enjoying this party. Verse 2 says this party was held in Jesus' honor. Judas's ego is chafing in a culture of intense love for Jesus. And he finds ways to attack this love under the guise of rationality, respectability, pragmatism. Yet these merely shroud an intense commitment to his own ego. He is the complete opposite to Mary. She gives all to Jesus. He wants what is given to Jesus for himself. She affirms Jesus. He is critical of Jesus. She is transparent. He is duplicitous. She is affectionate. He is cold and calculating. She opens up her heart. She's vulnerable. He is close-hearted. She opens up her hand. She's generous. Generous. He is tight-fisted. A few months ago, um, the single leaders, we articulated our values. And one of our values is that we want to be welcoming and generous. Welcoming and generous. And this is what we're going to put on our website. Jesus said, freely you've received, freely give. And stretched out his arms on the cross to take the whole world in. So we welcome people into our lives and open up our wallets, our calendars and our homes to God's mission. What we have is too good to keep to ourselves. So we extend ourselves to introduce others to Jesus Christ. You love Jesus by being open-hearted towards him, open-handed towards him. Which leads to the fourth way to love Jesus lavishly. It's this. Be Christ-centered, not cause-driven. Be Christ-centered, not cause-driven. And what does Jesus mean when he says you will always have the poor with you? By the way, he's not saying neglect the poor. Because actually he's quoting Deuteronomy 15 where it says, There will always be poor people in the land. Therefore I command you to be open-handed towards your brothers and towards the poor and needy in the land. What Jesus is doing is he's warning against being cause-driven as the overriding impulse of our lives. Our first and our first preoccupation is loving and serving Jesus. Our second preoccupation flows out of it. Loving and serving others. But it's possible that being part of a cause, even the cause of Christ, can uh, overtake our love for Jesus. And then we end up making a mess. Being cause-driven is particularly enticing, and we are called to great causes. But when that cause becomes the driving thing in your life and you lose your close walk with Jesus Christ, that cause-drivenness has got a way of destroying you. Come on, you know some people who have been cause-driven. Look at them a few years later. How they're faring. A lot of those guys don't last very long in any cause. It's grueling to take on injustice in the world. It's grueling to, to take on some huge need in the world it needs to be done but we must take care of our souls C.S. Lewis says when first things are put first second things are not suppressed but increased but if you put second things first you don't see second things very well and you've got the misery of not having done the first thing so how to love Jesus put yourself at Jesus' feet offer what is most precious to him be open hearted and open handed be Christ-centered, not cause-driven. And then the last point, Jesus, Julia, am I doing well? You see, I called her Jesus. I've got such admiration for her. Am I okay, baby? Not too long. You're not going to reprimand me in the car. Hey? Okay. 
Believe that you really can touch his heart. Believe that you really can touch his heart. Greek philosophers used to speak about God as the unmoved mover. He moves everything else, but you can't touch his heart. He's God. And then you look at the God that we find in Jesus, and it looks like you can move his heart. You can bring joy and delight to your heavenly Father. You've got to believe it. You've got to believe it. And fascinatingly, Jesus says that what Mary has done here was intended. Verse 7. In other words, this has been part of God's sovereign purpose. God orchestrated Mary saving up this perfume for this day. God is the one who tapped Mary on the shoulder saying, do it. Why? Jesus says to prepare him for his death and burial. It's as though while Mary is ministering to Jesus and pouring out this perfume on Jesus' feet, God the Father is speaking to his son. What's God the Father saying to the Son? Well, we can speculate. He's saying, you're about to go through the tragedy of suffering. But I'm going to be closer to you than the clothing on your body. I'm going to stick with you like this perfume is going to stick on your body. Even Jesus, as he's been crucified, in the midst of all of the blood, the sweat, there's some perfume with him reminding him that God is with his Father is with him. And then, and then, of course, what Jesus does on the cross, he becomes a perfume factory, filling the universe with his perfume. Back to one of our values in Signal. We value spirit-led worship and encounter. Jesus said, the time is coming, indeed it's here now, when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. The Father is looking for those who will worship him that way. For God is spirit. It's one of the reasons we slow down. We savor God's goodness and presence through our singing in our weekly gatherings. But notice this. The Father seeks those who will worship Him. He's looking. He's he's seeking to be sought after. He's thirsting to be thirsted after. He is pleased when we find pleasure in Him. Every time we pray... We worship, we offer up ourselves again to Him. It touches His heart, it moves Him. He's not the unmoved mover. He's a loving Father. His heart is an open wound of love. He cares for you. He knows you better than anyone could possibly know you. He is so committed to you. He'll never leave you. He will never forsake you. He is so interested in your life. I mean, we live in a fairly therapeutic culture that is very wound-attentive. <laughs> the Father's always known about those wounds long before we even found language for them. And He's always had the ability to come close to you and heal what is broken and address what needs fixing and drive the lies out of our minds and break off the sin from our lives, forgive us for what we've done wrong. The Father loves you, cares about you, knows you better than you could ever know him. The fact that he knows you, the fact that he's so interested in you, awakens a reciprocal interest. You begin to know the God who knows you, and you become interested in the God who is very interested in you.